0: This is Queen Victoria. Welcome to Murder Lab, the podcast where I dissect serial killers and analyze what I find. Welcome, welcome, welcome. About a billion years ago, it seems, I did an episode about some different stranglers. And I said I was going to do a part two of them, and I had not have not done that yet because I got distracted with other things. Today I bring you part two. What I'm going to do is... I'm going to go through three Strangler serial killers, tell you about them, and then I will record a third part where I talk about and compare the serial killer, the serial killers from part one and part two. So it'll be like a, an overall sweeping, how do you compare these? I think I did four in the last one. I'm doing three in this one. So those seven Stranglers will kind of go over them and what they have in common and, and that kind of thing. Uh, we also have coming up, Igor and I are going to talk about Robert Durst. And I admit, the Durst that I've had in my brain is Fred Durst. So I will probably slip and say Fred Durst. So don't get confused. But we're going to talk about him because, uh, well, you know, he was just sentenced. And I know Igor's mentioned him before. I recently acquired a book about him because I really didn't know much. And technically, he's not... Cons- Technically, he's not a serial killer because he hasn't been convicted of three murders. I believe he's just been been convicted of one, but there were implications of him and a couple others. So that's something we'll discuss, too, is we'll technically going to be a Crime Keeper episode. So we'll let Igor lead that, and maybe we'll talk a little bit about whether he could be considered a serial killer or not. So that will be coming out and a bunch of other fun stuff. I have not come out with Comics by Candlelight yet because I had a glitch where I was gonna cover the Dexter ones and apparently my brain doesn't always work anymore and I thought I had all of the comics and it appears that I'm missing one so it is on its way as soon as I get it I will start the Comics by Candlelight series on YouTube and go over horror comics and sitch I'm just gonna jump in here. The stranglers I'm going to be speaking of today are Anthony Sowell, Herb Baumeister and Joel Rifkin. My primary reference material for Anthony Sowell is called Nobody's Women, The Crimes and Victims of Anthony Sowell, The Cleveland Serial Killer by Steve Miller. Anthony Sowell is also known as the Cleveland Strangler. Of course, it would happen in Cleveland, Ohio. Sowell grew up in uh, living with his family in one house. There were like 13 of them in this one house and his parents were divorced, so he was mostly raised by, like, his ma, his grandma, his grandma, and, and there were a bunch of other little ones running around. He was 30 in 1989. There was a woman named Melvette who he subdued her with a knife when he had her at his place. He tied her up, gagged her, took a nap. Over a period of 12 hours, he raped her orally, vaginally, and anally. And would have her constantly dress and undress. The evening ended when he choked her to death. And then he slept. He had a court date July of 1989. But he missed that court date so there was a warrant out for his arrest. Then in June 24th, 1990, there was a 35-year-old woman who was five months pregnant or three months pregnant depending on which source you use. He choked her with his arm from behind her. He bound her hands and feet with a tie and belt and gagged her with a rag. He raped her orally, vaginally, and anally, and then went to sleep, which apparently that's his M.O. It turns out he got arrested on that warrant, and he got 15 years in jail. And that warrant was for violence and abuse of a woman. So, he does 15 years, gets out in 2005 and goes back to East Cleveland. He moved in with his stepmom, which apparently this was like a big house, so there were several floors. And he lived like on the third floor, and she lived on the first floor or something. Well, in 2001, she ended up, I believe, being put in a home or something, because she wasn't doing well. And it's important to note, at this time, there was a big drug epidemic. So he was drinking and doing drugs, and he was very angry. An important thing to note is the neighborhood smelled bad. Now, there is a raise. there was a raised sausage next to Sowell. So people thought it was the sausage place that was smelling so terribly. So the sausage place actually spent $20,000 for new plumbing, sewer lines, and grease traps. The smell didn't go away. In 2006, his girlfriend Lori noticed that his smell—his place had a bad smell— and, and, of course, you know, others were noticing, but she specifically mentioned that she noticed it smelled like death. By the way, Lori was the niece of Cleveland Mayor Frank Jackson. When Lori asked Anthony about why, his pla- why it smelled so bad at his place, he blamed his elderly stepmom because at that point she was still living with him. He said she's stinky. and Or he said the basement flooded and things had rotted or, you know, he had a bunch of uh, different excuses for that. But I think we all know where this is headed. He starts smoking crack, started seeming paranoid, and he smelled, as we discussed. He bought boxes of heavy-duty garbage bags, cleaned up his backyard, and would plant and plant things and bury things, if you know what I mean. He also had women's clothing all over his house, which, I mean, people did. It was like a big party place, a hangout place, so maybe that's not terribly unusual, but it's a little unusual. In 2008, Gladys Wade was attacked on the street near his house. He asked her to come in and have a drink. She said no. The next thing she knows, he is choking her from behind with his arm. She passes out. He takes her inside. She punches at him, screams, and fights. She eventually gets away. Well, of course, then at this point, the cops, when she goes to the cops, it's her word against his. Because the women that he tended to hang out with were drug addicts, and they had... They were kind of disreputable. So that didn't really help with the cops. I'm not saying that's okay. I'm saying that this sucks and this is a big problem, as we'll see throughout this episode. In 2009, he begins living alone. And it's important to note that, you know, he had gone to jail for being a sex offender. At that point, it was not common knowledge. Like now, you know, they send you postcards if a sex offender moves into your neighborhood. Well, people didn't know unless you told them. And I don't, and it obviously wasn't required that you tell them because anthony wasn't telling anybody so not many people knew so that's important to know that if some of these people might have known that he was a sex offender it's possible that they might have avoided this terrible fate his ex-girlfriend tanya das visited with him and she'd been his girlfriend so she had been around him and he hadn't done anything to her and well this in this case he attacked her knocked her on the floor but he didn't rape her And then he acted like nothing happened. So she was scared of him, but she was able to convince him not to do anything. So it turns out she didn't report him due to an outstanding drug charge. There were, I mean, like I said, it was a hangout. So it wasn't unusual for women to come over and hang out and do drugs and drink and party with them. and, And they would come in and out of the house and nothing would happen. Well, they did notice in that neighborhood women kept going missing. Sometimes reports would be filed. But again, when you have this issue where if you have people who are possibly sex workers or you know just women who are addicted to drugs and are down on their luck and maybe prone to disappearing at times anyway it's the, the the forgotten people situation where some women are afraid of speaking up because like in this case she had an outstanding drug charge maybe she hasn't had the she doesn't have the best record so she doesn't have respect she doesn't have that The cops won't listen to her. And there's also a problem where you might try to report them missing and then you get the runaround like, oh, they're not in this jurisdiction, so you have to go here and then you go there. And they're like, well, no, technically it's so sometimes you get the runaround. A woman named Latundra was with him. He punched her, told her to take off her clothes, put an electric cord around her throat. When she came to, I want to kill you and I want to kill myself. I know I'm going to jail. So she obviously was freaked out, said she wouldn't say anything. He raped her, but then he let her go. So she went to the hospital, and when she was telling them about what happened, they had said about five women had come in saying that Sowa had raped them. That's another interesting where you you see this recurring thing, but nothing's being done. Well, then Sean Morris was hanging out with him. He did his thing where he comes up from behind and chokes her, has her take off her clothes, rapes her he goes to sleep because that's another thing that he does is he obviously doesn't have any fear of these women and so he feels totally comfortable just falling asleep around them she screams tries to get out the window there's like I think like a little ledge or a little roof or something and she's out there while he tries to grab at her so she fell and I saw two stories I still saw three stories but still it's not good she fell from a couple stories She had broken hands and eight ribs broken. A fractured skull is laying there naked. Someone sees Anthony comes outside. He was naked and he was trying to pull her up from the ground and take her back inside. Well, then a a crowd comes and the ambulance comes and she's, the cops come and he claims that that's his wife and they were just having an altercation or kinky sex went wrong or something. Well, unfortunately she was married. And she didn't want her husband to find out that she fucked this guy, and so she lied and and agreed that they were a couple, so he went home now in one case, I had said that that she was on drugs and wouldn't talk to the cops, so I don't know either way, the result's the same he didn't she didn't press charges, and so Anthony went free but there was a warrant out for his assault on Latundra. So apparently the one that when she went to the hospital and said five women had come in, she did end up pressing charges. So they got a warrant for that assault. So finally someone took her seriously and it's a good thing. She went to the hospital and said something and had proof. What did they find when they went into his home? He wasn't there. They found bodies all over his house. They found bodies of Talisha Fortson, 31, Diane Turner, 38, and Janice Webb, age 49. Of course, you know how it goes where you'll come across different numbers of how many were where. Most of them tend to say there are two bodies on the living room floor. There were bodies in the crawl space, there was a shallow grave in the basement, and then there were bodies in the backyard. Now, the number varies as to where they were, but the number stays consistent of the final count. So they found 11 bodies in this man's house. You know, the stinky man where his neighborhood smells like death, 11 decomposing bodies. It seems like there were three bodies outside and then there were like three bodies inside. They also found just a skull inside a bucket in the house. We've got bodies hanging around the living room. He had stuffed some in the crawl space. There was a shallow grave in the basement and then he had buried some in the backyard. And then there's just a random human skull in a bucket, as there would be. It's what I call the uh, serial killer chi. No matter what the exact number of where everybody was buried, there were 11. The other victims included Janice Webb was found with a leather belt around her neck. They identified the skull in the bucket belonged to LaShonda Long, who was apparently around 24, 25. The one source said 17, which it's weird to me that you go from 17 to 25 usually it's just like a year apart they never found her body so no idea where the body was they just found her skull and that's just freaking freaking terrifying they found crystal dozier age 38 she had a slim cloth around her neck tonya carmichael age 53 had electric cord around her neck Amelda hunter 47 had a purse strap around hers michelle mason age 45 had a cloth around hers and there was Kim Smith, age 44, and it doesn't, I didn't find what he had strangled her with. Tisha Culver, a, around age 31, was in the crawl space upstairs along with Nancy Cobb, 43. A shoelace and sock was around her neck. A neighbor across the street went looking for him because, you know, the cops are at his house and crazy things are happening. So she goes to find him. He comes with her. But when they get there, he's like, no, take me back. So she was kind of nervous because she was surprised that he would do it. So you can understand why she was hesitant. So there's a part of her like, ah, could he have done that? But then a part of her like, what the fuck? If he did do it, I'm in a car with a killer. She went ahead and took him back to the mom's house. Well, her son knew that she was doing this, so he told the cops. And Anthony fled. A guy spots him later, and he is arrested. They found that he had—there were 11 total victims— that were dead. And then there were three surviving victims that they could prove. So there's a total of 14 victims. He wound up getting found guilty and got the death penalty. But he was on death row for a while until up to 2021. So he died in February 2021 awaiting execution. He was aged 61 and he died of an unspecified terminal illness. I didn't I think it's important to note that the author did talk to Anthony Sowell himself and get his view of things and, you know, corroborated some of the details. He was nicknamed the Cleveland Strangler or the Imperial Avenue Murderer. I saw that there was something about how the, I guess the house has been torn down and they were doing a Garden of Eleven Angels memorial on the former property that is expected to be completed, was expected to be completed October 2021. Yep, they actually completed it. I'm looking at pictures. Yesterday, an article came out where they had the memorial unveiled. They have a black granite monument inscribed with the names of the 11 murdered women, and it has an angel on it. Florence Bray is Crystal Do- was Crystal Dozier's mother, and her niece, Imelda Hunter, was also a victim. So she had knew two people that had been murdered by him. Nice to see this memorial has been done, so I encourage you to... You can just type in Garden of Eleven Angels, and it'll pop up, and you can see that there's actually a memorial there now for his victims. I did, of course, double-check facts in a few different places, and I will post those places on the website, murderlabmedia.com, So you can see his M.O. was he would choke one from behind commonly, tie them up, rape them, and then strangle them, usually with a ligature. And they all tended to be black and poor, homeless or lived alone and had a history of drug and alcohol abuse so again when you when you have victims in this pool of people it it enables you to be active longer and to get away with your crimes longer because it's not a group of people that the cops are paying much attention to unfortunately but thankfully they someone finally paid attention and they were able to get him now on to herb baumeister he's one that I hadn't really heard of and then I stumbled upon him somehow and it's really interesting because technically he well he was never charged with anything so let me jump into it and you can see what I'm talking about so my main source for this is where the bodies are buried devoted family man demented killer the True Story of Herb Baumeister, Indiana's Worst Serial Murderer, by Fanny Weinstein and Melinda Wilson. The book starts by talking about a man that goes by Tony Harris, goes to the cops and says, I went home with this, this guy that I met in a gay bar and that he had an indoor pool where he had tons of mannequins just hanging out and posing around places. He talked about autoerotic asphyxiation and where he liked to have someone strangle him while they're having sex. And he was trying to encourage the guy. Well, the, the guy went home with him because he thought this was the guy responsible for his friend that went missing. So the only reason he went back is to try to do some research and try to figure out, is this the guy that took my friend? So when Herb hits on him, he ends up punching him. But then they end up hanging out for a little bit longer, and he was kind of trying to check things out. But he winds up leaving, and and so he does end up going to the police and saying, "I really think this is the guy that's responsible." So that is how her Baumeister gets into the radar of the cops. It's important to note that at this point, it is in Indianapolis, Indiana, and Indiana- Indianapolis was very conservative. There were a lot of gay clubs and gay bars. A lot of people weren't out. So it wasn't... It was still... It was looked down upon. And so, again, you have a group of people where if you... If someone is going around killing from this group of people, it's not going to be paid attention to because it's looked down upon. And some people who are involved know that they're not going to be taken seriously, so they don't say anything. So Tony did take, take a chance by saying something. For example homosexual men were disappearing there were 10 reported between April of 1993 and August of 1995 so within two years 10 men were missing all between the ages of 20 to 46 and all frequented gay bars and clubs men are disappearing no one seems to give a shit in the meantime you have Julie and Herb Baumeister and three kids they started a thrift store called save a lot and what's funny is when you see pictures, the, all the pictures are of the grocery store save a lot. But this was a thrift store. They just dealt with clothes and stuff. So their agreement was that they would give money to the Children's Bureau of Indianapolis. I thought they only had two locations. I really thought that in the documentaries I watched and stuff that they said that. But I saw that were, in some sources they had three locations. So they had um, two to three or possibly more stores, I guess. So they were, their thrift store was doing well. And Herb and his wife managed it together. In November 91, they bought Fox Hollow Farm. It's in a really nice area. They paid a million dollars. I think it was probably worth like two and a half million or something. It was a four-bedroom house, but it had an indoor pool, a riding stable, and was 18 acres. So it was really nice, and they thought it'd be perfect for their kids. So they moved in there. Julie and the kids would visit her family without Herb a lot of the time because of the business. So they couldn't both go off at the same time. So sometimes she would leave, he'd watch the businesses and then he'd join them on the weekends. So you can see there was plenty of time for him to be alone. When Herb was younger, he had a breakdown. He had worked at the BMV and his wife said it was over his car breaking down. But it was bad enough that his doctor father had him committed to a hospital, and he was diagnosed schizophrenic. But there aren't any records that show that he took any medication for it or followed up on it. He had a, a extremely erratic behavior. At one point, he peed on his boss's desk. So he there's all kinds of uh, interesting adventures that he went on. Roger Ellen Goodlett, who was 33, d- had disappeared. He had brain damage and some mental issues, and he had lived with his mom. And his mom was very concerned, obviously, that he was missing— And she was totally okay with him being homosexual and understood that he wasn't all there. So it was really especially concerning since he he could take care of himself to a certain point, but after a certain point, he was kind of like a child. So she was very concerned that he had gone missing. She contacted Mary Wilson, who is with missing persons, two of the mothers of other men who had disappeared, contacted a private investigator named Virgil Vanagriff So we have Mary Wilson and Virgil Vanagriff that start looking into what is happening. Some of the other men that disappeared were Alan Broussard who's 28, Jeff Jones 31, Johnny Bayer 20, Michael Kearn 46. In an interesting twist. Larry Eiler had been active in that area in the 1980s. If you're not familiar with Eiler, which I had not been, is he used to kidnap kidnap and torture and murder men. He would drug them, handcuff them, and disembowel them. And he did this to 23 men. So he had been active in the 80s, but they caught him and people were still disappearing. Well, also there was the I-70 Strangler. So around since 1980 to 1990, 12 men were found murdered around Western Ohio and Indiana. Most were from Indianapolis. But there were 12 men murdered and they had been strangled with a tire or rope, many handcuffed, and they were always near water. There was no Eiler trademark. So even though there was handcuffs and they were killed, they hadn't been disemboweled or drugged. So even though Eiler was killing during the same time period as the strangler, they they don't connect Eiler with these stranglings. There were two serial killers happening at that point in time. They didn't know who the I-70 Strangler was. Tony had very complex feelings when it came to Herb. Now, Herb did not use his real name. He told Tony his name was Brian Smart, or it could have been Stats. And Tony did see him one more time because he said the guy seemed... There was something compelling about him. But he was also obviously a little scared of him. But he was vigilant about trying to get them to take a look. So he would, you know, did what he could. He had trouble remembering where the place was, but he, you know, tried real hard to do it. When he was telling the cop, of course he told the cops, he told me his name's Brian Smart or Stats. Well, they couldn't find from Ohio. He said it was from Ohio. So they searched, couldn't find Brian Smart from Ohio with, you know, these information. Well, then they said, if you happen to see him at the club again, then get his license plate. Herb actually shows up at that club. Tony distracts him and has a friend go out and get his license plate number. So they get the license plate, and it is traced to Herb. Herb and Julie wouldn't let them search the house. They just kind of said, hey, some people are going missing, and, you know, we've seen you, blah, blah, blah. And so they refused. Herb biz- was able to convince Julie that it was a um, some kind of conspiracy against him and Julie believed him. Let's talk about Julie for a second. Julie is the epitome of I can't handle it, so I'm going to pull the shades on it. She when the police started talking to her, she said that she never saw her husband nude and that when they had sex he would undress in the dark. They had sex six times in their marriage, and they were married for quite a while. They had three kids, so apparently we know they definitely had sex at least three times. She claims they had sex six times. In some cases, you might think that, you know, she's exaggerating, or and it's possible, but I don't know, because there's also this. At one point, her son found a skull and skeleton in their backyard, and when she asked Herb about it, he was like, oh, you know, remember when Dad was in med school— That's a skeleton from from one of his classes. Like that's just one that he had. It, It just happens to be out there. I don't. I don't know. I'll get rid of it. She believed him. Now, when I say she believed him, let's just say she stopped talking about it. So I think a part of her knew that it was bullshit, but she was not ready to turn her life upside down and start questioning what was happening because she had business. She had kids. I'm not saying it's okay. I'm not saying it's right, wrong, or indifferent. But I'm saying that she obviously could not handle. It's a big thing to handle, (laughs) granted. So there are lots of flags that she ignored. I think that deep down she knew something was going on. But she couldn't handle confronting it. So it was easier to just believe Herb. And now another tidbit is that the first house they had lived in together, they kept. Herb would frequently go there. He got his mail there. So his mail did not come to the house with his wife and kids. His mail came to a place only he went to. So he was in control of his own mail. So that's an interesting note. So once the cops got Herb on their radar, they were afraid to approach him because they didn't have really anything except for one man who said he attacked me or, you know, that this happened and I'm pretty sure that he's this guy So there's very loose connections. So you don't want to just go up to this guy and say, hey, we're pretty sure you strangled and killed a bunch of missing men because then you might spook him and then he may get gone and you'll never know. They had been having marital troubles. So off and on, they had talked about divorce. He actually moved out at one point, then they got back together. So things were starting to get strange. She was starting to feel everything. So finally... After the cops had come to her and expressed their concerns, she really got thinking about that skeleton that was in the backyard and her son was with him. She decided, you know what, I'm going to cooperate. I'm going to ask for temporary custody of Eric and have him brought back to me and then let the cops search the house and just see, see what happens. Like, it's time to deal with this. So they got Eric back from her basically using the temporary custody thing as the reason they tried not to clue him in that they had any idea of what was going on they I mean he already knew like they confronted about going to gay bars and possibly being homosexual and of course he played it off like um it's something that I tried and I obviously don't want my wife to know but I haven't done anything you know but obviously at this point Herb knows something's up so the cops go to the house and start searching it Apparently, the house was in just really bad condition. Raccoons had taken over a lot of it, and they had tons of just shit. Well, probably literal raccoon shit, but they had tons of stuff there. Apparently, he was a hoarder, and he did have mannequins all over his indoor pool room. Julie had said there were hundreds of videotapes that he kept. They were gone when the cops went there, so she was befuddled. One cop surmised that it looks like there was a place for a secret camera, an event pointing towards a fold-out couch. Now that is, I think, I'm pretty sure that's one of those things where someone just said, hey, it looks like that would go there. I don't know that they ever proved, were able to prove that he had put a camera there. But it is an interesting detail. In two and a half days, they found 5,500 bones, teeth, and bone fragments on the property. At least four men. There was no entire skull found. They found another pile of bones in a ditch. With It had ribs, vertebrae, mandibles, and spines. There are 140 bones there, making the total body count thus far seven. They found seven thumbs. So they figured, well, there has to be at least seven people here. When it, all, it was all said and done, they found at least 11. Some said up to—the the general consensus seems to be that there were 11 bodies, uh, fragments found— and they were able to ID – so you had Rick, Roger Allen Goodlett, which was the friend that Tony had been looking for. So they did find Roger Goodlett, who's 33, Stephen Hale, 26, Richard Hamilton, 20, and Manuel Resendez, who was 31. He still wasn't taken in. They were still afraid to say anything. Even though they found Bones on his property, they still didn't have a way to tie him other than that's his property. So they were still worried that if they said something that he would run. Well, then Herb speaks to the kids and he had done a thing where he had called his lawyer and made it sound like this is the last time I'm going to talk to you. So the lawyer's like, I think he's going to kill himself. Well, then when the cops went to go see if he what was up, Herb's like, I didn't say anything like that. I didn't I don't know what you're talking about. So there was some precedent that he might kill himself. So the cops just got the feeling from the way he spoke to the kids that he was going to do it. Well, he ran, he ran, so they were having trouble finding him. It turns out his body was found in a park in Ontario, Canada. There was a single shot to his forehead. by a, There was a 357 Magnum revolver. He did leave a suicide note that was three pages where he was sorry to end his marriage. He ruined the thrift store business and that he was even sorry that he was spoiling the beauty of the park. He made it clear to say there's only one bullet in the chamber, so a kid couldn't hurt themselves if they happened upon the gun after he was dead. There was no mention of the missing men. It was basically everything else. He got off his chest and was saying, that's why I killed myself, but nothing about the missing men. So at this point, they start realizing, maybe... He has ties to being the I-70 Strangler. The Preble County, Ohio, prosecutor's office started investigating. Herb is a strong suspect. They they really thought, it really seemed like they believed that it was him. But they couldn't come right out and say, we have this, all of this proof. But some interesting things. One of the I-70 Strangler victims had a friend who saw him leave with a guy. He remembered that the guy he left with had this specific watch on. He makes a statement to the police at that time. Well, then 14 years later, he is shown a picture of Herb and he recognizes the watch. So he's like, that's the watch that I made the statement about and and the watch matches the statement. So that's, you know, I mean, I know it's still circumstantial, but that's still pretty compelling. So he can be linked with 16 deaths. He used to travel a lot in that area. So it is possible that he was the I-70 strangler they had found a couple different places where he had bones around so after the skull was found and that skeleton by his son apparently he started to try to cover things more so they found an area further on the property where there was an area where he would burn things and there's a ditch in compost and the bones included fractured hyoids and that is a sign of strangulation so that is also interesting some little tidbits about herb He drove a Range Rover, and the only reason that sticks out to me is because it's always sunny. They set up that Dennis might be a serial killer, basically, and he drives a Range Rover. So I found that kind of funny. Something that's not funny, in 1995, he got a DUI. So he wrote a note to the judge and said his wife was dead. She had just died, and he was trying to take care of his family and got out of the DUI. To get out of a DUI, he said his wife was dead. That seems pretty fucking extreme. (laughs) Like, You think you could come up with something that wasn't quite as big? Like, why would you need to use that big thing to get out of... You probably could have used something that wasn't... So it's it's intriguing. Uh, It is said that at his Save-A-Lot stores, he would hire attractive young men, which makes one think of John Wayne Gacy, because John Gacy would do that. He would hire young men for his contracting business. They actually, when he was growing up, people, people, I believe they called him Strange Herb. (laughs) He was always always a little bit off, always a little bit different. But he did seem, though, kind of harmless. He would get angry sometimes. But most of the time, people just thought that he was just weird, you know. He doesn't have an official nickname unless you could believe that he's the I-70 Strangler, which in the big book of serial killers, they have him listed as the I-70 Strangler. So if you believe that, which I think it's compelling then that would be his nickname. The thing is why he might not have a name is because again, he was never officially charged for anything. They never officially proved that it was him. That is what is so interesting is, is he's listed as a serial killer and a bunch of stuff because when it comes down to it, when you have all these bones in your property, people are placing you at these places because bartenders would say, oh, yeah, he was here. I saw him. He seemed uncomfortable. So it was one of those things where he didn't – he seemed a little awkward about being in a gay bar. So maybe he hadn't completely embraced everything and, you know, which, as I said, that that was a a really conservative town. So it's understandable that maybe he would feel – and plus he's married with kids. So he had had all that to try to protect. So he, he was – he could be placed in those places. And people did recognize him. So I think – You probably did kill all those people because Julie, I don't think Julie did. And what are the odds that someone is just going to bury a ton of people on your property? And especially when a skeleton was brought up to him, if you weren't killing people, and there's no way that that was actually a skeleton from his father's medical thing, then if he was not doing it, then you'd think he would be like, what the fuck? I'm going to look into this. We need to figure out what the fuck's going on. I'm going to get security, you know, whatever, but he doesn't. He blows it off. Those hundreds of tapes were missing. They found a few tapes that just had like, you know, movies on it or things from TV and where did all those go? And Julie seemed to be I mean, Julie admitted that she never saw her husband naked. So I don't think that she would lie about a hundred hundreds of video because she didn't want that to have happened. She didn't want him to be a killer. So I don't think she would manufacture things that all said make him a killer. Because if anything, it was difficult for her to admit that he had these signs that she didn't want to. People do kind of call her out for being too naive. There is a question of whether he had an accomplice because Tony had said that when they pulled up that it looked like he shined the lights in the window like he was signaling someone and someone else had made a comment about another man. I don't know. From the things that I've read, I don't think that's a thing. I feel like Herb probably worked on his own, but I mean, I don't know. The, The killings didn't keep going after Herb left. So the other big problem is that Tony isn't completely reliable. I have a book called Horrors of Fox Hollow Farm, and it's all about how there are apparently hauntings there and disturbances and so Tony, in, in Where the Bodies Are Buried, he is kind of all over the place in that, but there's enough of it that is true that you know that he's somewhat reliable, but then he does kind of change his story in some of the details over time. And in The Haunting of Box Hollow, it's really interesting because in that one, by that time, he said that he, they used to go out all the time. So I don't know. That's, that's another interesting thing about the story is just Tony. Is Tony is the different things that he says and I am going to do a side episode on just the hauntings at Fox Hollow Farm because it is it is funny and interesting so I'll throw that out there sometime just a short thing about that. I want to take a moment to talk about the book that I bought that's called The Thrill Killer of Indy Her Baumeister the I-70 Killer by Brian Lee Tucker. When I first bought the book, I wondered about the cover. Because the cover seems more like an Ed Gein type thing. Like, it's like the face... It's hard to explain. Almost looks like the skull, like the top part of the skull still has a skin. And the eyes are really like sunken and the flesh has seeped away. And like the nose is gone. You can just see the bone in the nose. And then the rest of it from like starting like under the cheeks... It starts to come out, and then it just looks like it's flesh that has been flayed off, and it's like um I don't know there's a gap in it under the chin. I don't understand. It's like the it was like that part was just it was pulled off from part of the chest up. It looks like a skin suit, an egger suit. I don't know. It's I don't understand, and it's been like sewed up, so it's like an Edgine skin thing, like an Edgeen skin mask that just still has the eyeballs in it. I don't understand who it's supposed to be. I don't know what it has to do with anything because there's nothing that says that he took skin off people. There's, I don't know why it's on there other than to be exploitational and to get your attention. And it pisses me off because it's, if this was about Ed Gein and you had that on there, I'd be like, okay, I can see why you did that. But to have it on there when it has nothing to do with anything and you're just doing it to try to get someone to pay attention, it pisses me off because it has nothing to do with anything. And to the point where when after I got the book and I started looking at it, I took the time to put a postie on the front and write trash. So my official opinion of this book is it's trash. I'm going to take a second and go through it. And we're going to talk about some of the reasons why it's trash. First of all, in the first sentence... He said that he was promoting his Save-A-Lot food store chain. He starts doing it from the perspective of, of you know, Herb is on this trip and he wakes up in a cold sweat. He's been having nightmares and he wipes the sweat from his face and it's looking in the mirror like the eyes of a stranger. So it's this big dramatic... We don't know that Herb had nightmares. I don't remember reading anything that he had nightmares. It says that he had... A dangerous attraction where every waking moment he had disturbing fantasies about capturing, torturing, raping, and then killing young men. He said he felt like God. He says that the ritual abuse of neighborhood pets became the dish daily served unto him. Blood sacrifices were performed often with increasing regularity. A stray dog he had captured was one of the first. He hoisted it on a meat hook and slit its throat, and he smeared the dead animal's blood all over his body and then drank from the carcass. Fuck you. Fuck you, Brian lee tucker that's just all bullshit i've never seen i have not seen anything in my studies about any of that you're just saying shit to say shit and that pisses me off because there's plenty of serial killers out there that did that kind of shit so just talk about them why do you need to make herb fancy it's fancy enough that he possibly strangled and killed 11 men and no one he fucking knew It's gruesome that they found bones on his property. You don't need to make him smearing blood all over his naked body and dancing in the moonlight or what the fuck ever, because that's Gein. Just fucking talk about Gein if you want to talk about that shit, because he literally did put a woman on a meat hook. He even has him raping a young man's dead corpse. It just goes on and on, and it's all trash. And the more that I look at it, the more I get pissed off, because he just is manufacturing this shit i imagine what he's doing i guess i will try to be in his defense devil's advocate he's trying to get into the mind of what herb might have been like and this in his mind this is how things would play out as herb but the problem is he doesn't have basis for a lot of this you have to have facts to say oh he killed a dog you can't just throw that in there because you think it happened it's just fucking i don't know he even like goes in and talks about how he goes and goes into a sex scene and including herb has the man bent over the table with his pants down knelt down behind him grasping his buttocks with his hands squeezing them and kneading them like a grocer would check a melon for ripeness what the fuck i think now i think this guy is making he's just fucking making fun of us (laughs) he's just like i'm gonna say the most the goofiest thing i hope if it's anything that he is doing this is tongue-in-cheek and he's trying to be funny and cheeky but what I'm think it's probably just that he thinks that that's actually sexy he thinks that that's something compelling it's just I just hate I mean and he really gets into like he, <sighs> he unzips his pants and thrusts himself into the man's rectum from behind sodomizing him violently and cruelly Like, what the fuck? Oh, and he says, Standing over his victim like a predator would watch over its fresh kill, and there's an apostrophe where there shouldn't be, Herb smiled and began stroking himself, saying, Love is malicious. Love is malice. And malice love. Jesus. Christ! How fucking... Oh, my God. I want to throw this book. And I'm amazed I even made it this far. But I kept going because I wanted to see how many fucking things... Actually, you know what? I think I did stop. I actually got further through it than I thought that I did. But eventually I was just like, I'm not going to read this shit. Like, this is just fucking ridiculous. It's fabricated fucking garbage, trash, ass face, bullshit. Fuck this book. I'm telling you, do not purchase The Thrill Killer of Indie by Brian Lee Tucker. Don't do it. Or anything. I'm just going to go ahead and say, just don't look at anything of his. Unless you just want... No, don't give this guy money. Even if it's slightly amusing and I can rant about it, don't give this guy any money. Don't give anybody any money for this book. It's just fucking trash, and I'm obviously very angry about it. I'm literally going to throw this book now. Okay. So, up next, we have Joel Rifkin. And Joel Rifkin's one that I had heard every once in a while, and of course... There's the episode of Seinfeld where Lane starts dating a guy named Joel Rifkin. She's trying to convince this guy to change his name from Joel Rifkin because it was about the same time that Joel Rifkin was strangling women. He was adopted, and his sister was adopted. His dad ended up killing himself after he got cancer. He lived with his mom, and she'd go out of town a lot. So we had some stuff boiling up inside him. His favorite movie was Hitchcock's Frenzy. If you haven't seen Frenzy... It is interesting. It's pretty good. He does strangle with, um, I believe he strangles with neckties. So he's strangly. And the thing that pops in my brain is I was watching the movie and I got a call. So I had to pause it. And I happened to pause it right at the scene where he was strangling a woman. But it was a close-up of her face and her tongue was sticking out. And it actually looked really funny. So I'm sitting there having this conversation staring at this (laughs) image on the screen. So now whenever I think of frenzy, I think of that specific image. And it is uh, it is disturbing, but he got turned on by it because he liked the idea of a woman being strangled. So he would not have found that amusing. He would have found that sexy and ew. The main book that I have as a reference is Crossing the Line, The True Story of Long Island Serial Killer Joel Rifkin by Lisa Beth Pulitzer and Joan Swierski. I want to make a joke about if you can't win an. When a Pulitzer Prize you may as well just make your name Pulitzer, but I don't know what she's won or what she hasn't won. I know she was a journalist. So in that book, they talk about how he stored de- stored some dead bodies in the garage. He started killing sex workers. The very first sex worker that he killed was a uh, spur of the moment. He he used to pick up sex workers. That was his big thing that he was known for. After he was caught, is he would just constantly visit sex workers. And a lot of them tended to be on drugs. So he would get irritated that, well, sometimes he wouldn't mind driving them around. And, you know, he figured, oh, you know, we'll just hang out and I'm going to get something from it. So I don't mind, you know, helping her, taking her to go get drugs and then doing our thing. So sometimes he didn't mind. What bothered him is if the woman would not pay attention to him, like she would start doing drugs and then ignore him. And then he didn't like it. As long as he was part of the activity or she, you know, involved in the activity, he didn't mind as much. I don't think that he actually did drugs because I think he actually found that repulsive. But he would get pissed if a woman was ignoring him. So in this case, this woman was doing her drugs and totally ignoring him. So he had had this boiling up in him. He had a huge artillery shell and he just started bashing her on the head with it and then strangled her to finish her off. He cleaned up, and then he took a nap. If that reminds you of someone, Sowell, what is crazy is that both of them, Joel Rifkin and Anthony Sowell, were both 30 years old in 1989. It's a weird coincidence, but I like to point it out, and I do think it's interesting that Sowell used to always abuse women and then take a nap. He was always taking naps. And then the thing that Joel does in his first, after his first kill was he took a nap. The way that he cleaned up is he actually dismembered her body her name was Heidi Balch, Balch, B-A-L-C-H. He removed her teeth and fingertips because he didn't want her to be identified. He put her head in a paint can, and he, which he left in the woods on a golf, cor- golf course. He disposed of her legs farther north and dumped her remaining torso and arms into the East River. Later, her he- head was discovered at the seventh hole of the golf, golf course, and then her legs were found in a creek. These parts were found in 1989. She was not identified until 2013. Of course, at that point in time, they didn't have DNA advancements like like we do now. So that explains that. But it's just really upsetting to know that she went unidentified for that long. That's the last time that he scattered things around and people found them. What he would do is he would sometimes kill at his home because his mom went out of town a lot. So he would kill them at home. Sometimes he would put them in the garage until he could dispose of them he transported dead bodies to store and dismember at a plot he had leased in Westbury he had a like a, a storage set there where he would stare store his landscaping equipment he was a landscaper so he had landscaping equipment and dead bodies as he would it said that he would sometimes kill in his home sometimes in the car after he picked picked up the sex worker so the way that he got caught is he was it was 1993 He had killed a sex worker named Tiffany Bresciani. He had killed her, taken her to the garage. After a few days, he put her in his car and he was going to go dispose of her. He didn't have his rear plate. And so the cops ended up seeing that. And when they go to pull him over, he starts to run. So eventually, I believe he crashes or something. So they catch him and they find this body in the car. Obviously, the jig is up. They ask him about it and he's like, you know what, I killed 17 people. So they find the one buddy and he's just like, you know what, I'm, I, I can't do it anymore, I don't know. So over four year time, he says he had 17 victims. He starts to talk about them. He can't always remember the names of the women, but he remembers like where he dumped them and things like that. They searched his room where they found trophies of his victims, including IDs, credit cards, jewelry, clothes, and pictures. So that did help identify some of the victims. He also had dozens of articles about Arthur Shawcross and a book about the Green River Killer. So he did admit that he admired Shawcross and that he apparently got some ideas from the Green River Killer. He does also admit, which is interesting, that he had watched Silence of the Lambs and in that movie they recommend putting Vaseline under your nose so you don't smell the bodies and stuff as badly he would put Noxzema under his nose apparently he would placed some of the bodies in objects like boxes and steam trunks some in oil drums he dumped them at several different rivers like the Hudson River East River Coney Island Creek Harlem River then also in Patterson Yorktown Northampton the Pine Barrens near an airport and in Cornwall there were two sets of remains that they found that they could not identify the victims include Mary Ellen DeLuca, 22, Heidi Balk, 25, Julia Blackbird, I didn't see her age and her remains were not actually found, Barbara Jacobs, 31, Yun Lee, 31, Lorraine Orvieto, 28, Mary Ann Holloman, 39, Iris Sanchez, 25, Anna Lopez, 33, Violet O'Neill, 21, Mary Catherine Williams, 31, Jenny Soto, 23, Leah Evans, 28, Lauren Marquez, 28, and Stephanie Bresciani, 22. He said that he hated sex workers that were addicted to drugs. He felt no remorse and that he felt the world was actually better without them, so he was doing something good. For an example on how sociopathic he was and disconnected, during the trial, so this lawyer standing up and talking, he described how Joel, in his mother's home, had put on rubber gloves before methodically chopping off the fingertips, yanking out the teeth, and wrenching off the limbs of his first victim. When the doctor asked Joel how he knew how to dismember the young woman, Joel told him, I assumed it was like a Thanksgiving bird. And with Thanksgiving coming up, you're welcome. You're welcome that I gave you that image right before Thanksgiving. But seriously, like, I just can't imagine just being able to tear up a human body and just comparing it with a bird. And I actually would not do a turkey for years. I just started doing it within the past few years. But actually they made it easier now because what I didn't like is like trying to get all the stuff out of the inside. So now they have it like a little bag. So you just pull it out. I I can't deal with it. So if I can't deal with even, I have trouble even like the whole neck business and the things inside even pulling the bag out. I I don't like it. So I can't imagine that. And he's just like, I don't know. It's nothing. It's just like, carving a turkey he got a life sentence which at least he admitted and he told them where to find the women so he could have the families could have some kind of closure and he is he's apparently still alive he got 203 years so I believe I saw something he's eligible for parole in like 2167 or something so he's still alive hanging out in prison I do have a movie about him I am going to also keep doing the thing where I talk about a movie and versus books about it and, you know, how much the books in the movie relate and how much seems to be factual and how much was fabricated. In the movie, I remember it was he had a friend in the movie who was like a Dungeons and Dragons master who walked around wearing a wizard hat and I love it. I just like the idea that he had a friend that was like that. But I haven't read anything that he had a friend like that. So that was I was a little disappointed because I liked the thought that he had a friend that was into Dungeons and Dragons. And I think they just threw that in there to make it more interesting. But but we'll see. I will. Um, I do have another book that I'm going to read about Joel Rifkin because I never really heard anything other than he strangled people. And I was interested to see what other details of his life were in there. Like he was bullied as a kid. There's a bunch of background information that I'd like to get into. Like I think he even had like a, a deformed foot. So I will be covering him some more. I'll do another episode based on him. And I will talk about Herb some more. Because there's other. A few other things. Like maybe get into his background. Of some of the crazy stuff that he did. So that's basically that. If we look at them compared. I still do. I do think it's crazy when I'm just doing research. When I'm doing research. And I just pick random people. And then. You just see things that are in common that it's interesting. Well, Just like that both Sowell and Rifkin were 30 in 1989. It's just funny to me that out of all these hundreds of serial killers, I picked two and they happened to be the same age at the same time. And they were both stranglers. And I don't know if there's something there to that. Maybe there's something about being 30 in 1989 that made you want to strangle people that were addicted to drugs. I don't know. So that's that was an interesting thing. And then, of course, you have... As is common with serial killers, that you have the victims are from places that, from situations where cops don't want to follow up on it. They're the forgotten people. That's another reason why they can get away with it for so long and and that they can do so much damage. Now, we don't know how Herb killed the victims. We just know that they were strangled. So we don't know. And there were no, like with Anthony, so well, you found, when they found the bodies, they actually found the ligatures around their neck. But... Obviously, since Herb was burning things and and getting rid of evidence and stuff like that, then we don't know how he did it. We don't. He could have done it manually. It's a little hard to do manually, but he could have. Or he could have used. And it it really is upsetting that he ran away and killed himself before we had any kind of answers. The reason I think he didn't mention it is it's kind of like reminds me of it's he pulled a Julie, where the truth was too hard to deal with. It's too hard to admit. It's too terrible. So I think that he was compartmentalized it. So maybe he didn't really feel anything for killing the men, but he legitimately felt something for his family. He was a good father by all reports. Like the kids were just floored. Like they couldn't believe it because he was such a good dad. And, you know, other people would say that he was a really good father. And so I think that that shows a case where he could compartmentalize. And I think he legitimately was upset that things weren't working out with Julie and that he cared for his kids so he was upset about that. think that he had a weird sensitivity. So he could be sorry that maybe he spoiled things at the park and that, you know, he was... In a weird way, I can see how that could be a thing. But that strangling and killing these men, to him, it's just like with Joel Rifkin just being able to carve her like a turkey. It's nothing. Like, a lot of times people, serial killers, just think of them, of the people as... They don't think of them as people. At some point, they're just nothing. They're just a thing. So it could be that he had this inclination, he did it, and then he blocked it out of, his, out of his mind. So maybe in his mind, he didn't really do it. It might be a thing where he went out and did it. Maybe he had that urge, filled that urge, and then blocked it off again, you know, sealed it up. When he knew he was going to kill himself, his final confession wasn't about those things because those things weren't the things that truly bothered him. I mean, I think that it bothered him in a huge way, just the same way that... Julian knowing that her husband might be a killer is so big and terrible that it's too much, and so yes, it's bothersome and it is a big burden, but it's too big to fully wrap your mind around. So it's easier to say I can say I'm sorry for being bad to my wife. I can say I'm sorry to my children that this things ended up happening this way. I'm sorry that the thrift store went out of business and that we weren't able to help the children anymore. Those are things that that are easier to wrap your mind around and are little. Bits that you can put out there and say, I am sorry for those because they're easier than I killed a bunch of men. So I think in his brain, he kind of cut that part off. And that's why he didn't mention the suicide note. And there is a finality and concreteness to saying, I killed 11 men. If you don't say that, you can still go out like people won't think that about you. Even if they say that they found 5,000 bones in your property. And a man says, he tried to kill me. If you don't have more evidence than that, it's easier for people to be like, well, that's all circumstantial. Maybe it's a coincidence. So they can have that kind of doubt in their minds. And and then it's more likely he'll be remembered as the man that was a family guy, family guy the man that was a good family person, that it was tragic the way that things turned out and it was unfortunate and he had some problems. You know, and maybe he did that, but we don't know that he did that. So they may focus on the other things. Whereas if he would have said, hey, I killed these people, that's what he'll be remembered for. So by not admitting to it, he's making it—he's trying to control the story. He's trying to control his narrative and how people view him. You still have doubts, you know, whereas if he came right out and said, I did it, he's taking all that away and he's making it too real. So I think that he did kill them (laughs) and— that he was just couldn't, couldn't fess up to it. And it could also be the Ted Bundy deny, 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 deny it to the end, where he really tried to stick to his guns that he didn't do it all through his trial and, and all that. And if you're persistent, then it makes people doubt themselves. It, it can make people doubt themselves. It is upsetting that we don't know more about Herb and what happened and that he killed himself, whereas, you know, you've got Sowell that was caught and he was in prison forever and he never killed himself in prison and you've got rifkin that when he was when he was caught he didn't try to weasel out of it he was just like okay i did it so it's, it's always interesting to see how these serial killers react once they're caught well that's it for this episode about the stranglers As I said, I will plan on putting another episode out where I compare the Stranglers from series one and two. I will keep going on randomly with Stranglers because unfortunately there's quite a few of them. So every once in a while I'll do a a thing, I'll pop up and talk about it. And I do have other things planned like lesser known serial killers and there'll be some other things like that coming up. I've been wanting to watch the TV show Nil, which is I believe on like IFC where David Tennant plays Dennis Nilsson. So I'd like to watch that. And I have, of course, I have books I can read about it. I will be covering Dennis and the move and the series and a bunch of other things. They've got a bunch of stuff in the works. Look forward to that. And Igor and I will be talking about Robert Durst in next week's episode. So look forward to that as well. Thank you, as always, for entering the lab. If you enjoy the experience and experiments of Murder Lab, go to Facebook, Instagram, and murderlabmedia.com for updates. Share with your friends, those you created in a lab or not, as long as they can subscribe and listen, we'll take it. Murder Lab is available on Google Play and iTunes. The RSS feed is on murderlabmedia.com for you to plug into your podcast app. We can always use more lab rats. Welcome, welcome, welcome. The Queen is back, and... This is Queen Murder. Welcome to Victoria Lab.